Good morning. Very thankful for everyone's attendance here this morning. Delighted to see everyone here. Uh, How blessed we are to be able to come together on the Lord's Day and worship Him and remember what Jesus has done for us. And uh, it's good to see some visitors here. We have some visitors here with us today and we're delighted that you could join us today and would invite you back at any opportunity that we have. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Give me reading verses 5 through 8. And I told Bill a couple weeks ago that the lesson I had been working on was going to go really well with his lessons on endurance. And so this will be a good, I think, companion lesson. So I appreciate Brother Bill's work with that. And I uh, was very encouraged by those lessons. And I hope that we'll all be continue to be encouraged by today's message from God's Word. We're going to be talking about finishing strong today. And again, it does come from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5-8, through 8, which reads, But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So as the Apostle Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy, he was in prison. And based on our reading here, he seemed to be well aware of the fact that his life was about to come to an end. Now he states that he is already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. And so Paul is providing Timothy with some some thoughts of encouragement or, or perhaps we might call them marching orders. Many of us are familiar with uh, how strong of a bond that Paul and Timothy had. Paul worked closely with Timothy during his second and third missionary journeys. And they formed a very strong relationship with one another. And we get a glimpse of this in the introductions of First and Second Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 2, Paul writes, To Timothy, a true son in the faith. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 2, Paul writes, To Timothy, a beloved son. And let's also consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 17. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in verse 17, where Paul writes, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul and Timothy were very close. Very much like a father and son in a sense. And so it's not so much of a surprise. It's really no surprise for us the things that we see Paul saying to Timothy throughout these two epistles. Paul knows his time on earth is coming to a close, although he does not know exactly when that is going to be, when that's going to come about. And there is a desire to provide Timothy with some more guidance, instruction, and encouragement. After all, the work will need to continue on even after Paul is gone. Now what I would like for us to focus on today is what Paul says in verse 7. In particular, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now this is a pretty familiar passage to, to many of us, I would, I, would, I would say. In fact, While this may not be one of the most quoted scriptures in the Bible, and interestingly enough, they have actually tabulated that, my guess is that there are plenty of people who are somewhat familiar with this concept of fighting the good fight and finishing the race. Uh, A Google search of what Paul says in verse 7 will, of course, lead you to several Bible websites. And, And an image search will lead you to some images of athletes, mostly runners, that will include this particular verse. Some of these are designed with what Paul truly had in mind, but there are others 
that seemed to be designed solely with athletic competition in mind. One website I came across while preparing for this lesson was, was called TeamMom365.com. And it's basically an online blog of a, well you guessed it, a team mom who has served as a team mom for several of her daughter's sports teams over the years. So she's put together this blog, like so many people are doing today, putting together a blog and that offers advice and support for other team moms. And, and this blogger had included an entry titled, Bible Verses for Athletes, which included our passage today, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. And what caught my attention was her opening remarks to this particular blog entry. And it reads, Every top athlete will tell you success in sports is more than endless hours of training. There is a certain percentage of luck and divine intervention. This divine intervention is clearly spelled out for us in the Bible. And what followed was a ridiculous display of several passages being taken completely out of context and made to apply only to athletic competition. And, and, and I guess it really shouldn't surprise me anymore when I see the world misusing and misapplying Scripture. But I still find myself, as I'm sure many of you do, shaking my head in wonder and disbelief at some of these things. It's really sad how lost people in this world are. And, and, and it serves as a reminder to me just how much work there is still to do in regards to evangelism and sharing the gospel. Anyway, I felt that it would be good for us to consider what Paul really meant when he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You know, what Paul is saying here is, so, is of so much more value than simply something to encourage one before an athletic event. This is about one's relationship with God. This is about one's walk with Christ. This is about one's dedication to their discipleship. This is about one's desire to have a home in heaven when this life is over. Reducing this passage and others in the Bible to nothing more that an athletic pep talk totally misses the point of what these words were originally intended for. So let's consider what Paul really meant and what it is that God wants us to understand in this passage. And may it help us in our spiritual walk with the Lord. And, and one of the things that I kept thinking of as I was preparing this lesson was, was how good we are as a people at starting things. You know, we'll, we will say that, that we're going to start eating better and, and we're going to start exercising more. And maybe we go to the doctor and then they aren't too happy with, with our blood work and the shape that we're in. And, and, and so they tell us we better get on that and we better take care of that. And, and so we come home and we say, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to exercise more. And we actually come up with a plan and for a little while we do pretty good following that plan. But as time goes by, we, be, we begin to slack off on that plan. And we, maybe we have a cheat day here. Well, I'll just eat what I want today. It's Friday. You know, I'll eat what I want, what I really want. And then we have a cheat day here. And then before we know it, we're having cheat days almost every day as far as our diet's concerned. And we just can't find the time anymore to do the exercise that was important to us when we first started this plan. And before we know it, we've just forgotten all about that plan that we had. We didn't see it through, and we didn't finish. And then when it's time for another checkup, we, we kind of dread going back to the doctor because we know I haven't been following the plan. And the doctor's not going to be happy. I had a colleague who has since retired at the school where I work, and, and he would, he would kind of make light of this type of thing because he'd say, well, if you hear some yelling and screaming coming from Glendora, that's because my doctor's going to be yelling at me because I haven't really been following my plan. Or maybe we're someone who has trouble with procrastination. This, of course, I think I brought this up before, it's a huge problem for many of my students. So we say, well, that's it. I am not going to procrastinate 
ever again. We're tired of the stress it causes. We're we're tired of how it just makes things more difficult for us. So we start working on it. And we come up with a plan. And we actually start out strong. But again, as time goes on, we begin to slip back into the old habits. And we aren't able to really finish our plan to eliminate procrastination from our lives. And there are other examples, of course, that we could look at and think of. But you all get the point. We can be very good at starting things, but not always very good at finishing things. And a major lesson that we get from our passage today in 2 Timothy 4.7 is that God wants us to finish strong. That alone is a great lesson for us. But let's consider some other observations that we can make from what Paul wrote to Timothy. Some important lessons that God wants us to understand. And one lesson that we can see is that our walk with God is personal. Notice in our passage this morning what Paul says. I have fought. I have finished. I have kept. Paul had done these things himself, and we have to do these things ourselves today. It is so important for us to understand this. Nobody can do these things for us. The shepherds can't do this for us, although we can benefit from their leadership. The preacher can't do this for us, even though we can certainly benefit from the work that he does. Our other brethren can't do this for us, even though we can benefit from their encouragement and edification. We have to do these things ourselves, and that was how God intended it to be. Now, of course, God has done so much for us, and, and this lesson by no means is meant to suggest that this it's no means meant to suggest that we're doing everything ourselves. I mean, we would not be in a position to do anything regarding our discipleship had it not been for what God has already done for us. He created us. He has provided valuable instruction for us through His Word, through His revealed Word. And He has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Without that sacrifice, without the grace and mercy shown to us through Christ, we would have nothing. But even with the gift of salvation, God has always expected His people to be obedient to His will. To be His obedient servants. There have always been things God's people were expected to do in order to be pleasing to Him. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are the workmanship of God. We are. We are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so we could walk in them. Let's also consider what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I, I hope that we can appreciate this. That yes, we are saved by God's grace and there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. However, this does not mean that there are not works of obedience that the Lord expects His people to be engaged in. This principle is taught throughout the Bible and can easily be understood if one wishes to truly look into the Scriptures and discover what God's will truly is. Sadly, many are content to allow others to tell them what the Bible teaches without doing any real studying on their own. Many are content to accept the false notion taught by many denominations today that that once you have come to Christ, there's nothing more that you need to do. 
You don't even have to be baptized, they'll say, because, well, well, that is a work. The Bible doesn't teach that, folks. And many of us in the Lord's church do understand that the Bible does not teach this doctrine of faith only, and yet, in a way, we can sometimes act like we kind of believe that teaching. You know, we can begin to embrace worldliness and and feel pretty good about ourselves because we all go to the, the right church. Or we might engage in all sorts of gossip about other brethren, be jealous of other brethren, be unloving towards other brethren, but not think a thing about these behaviors because, well, I'm here at worship every Sunday and I take the Lord's Supper and I pray, I sing, I give, but, but you see what the problem is with this, don't you? The individual who acts in this way is simply checking off boxes on a list. And it kind of reminds me of the passage in Micah chapter 6. And I know a lot of us will be familiar with this passage. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where it reads, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This passage in Micah, teaches us that being a true disciple has nothing to do with meeting quotas or checking off boxes on a list. Being a disciple, a true disciple, is about living the way that God wants you to live and truly walking with Him. If you need any more convincing about this, read the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5. A great sermon spoken by Jesus that is really all about changing who we are from the inside out. And you get that instruction right off the bat from the Beatitudes. These spiritual qualities that Jesus says that the people of God will have. So yes, God has done so much for us. Uh, There are things He has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. And without Jesus and His sacrifice for our sins, we would have no hope. But He has also instructed us on how we can be more like Him and be pleasing to Him. He has given us commandments to follow. And He expects us to follow them as good and faithful servants would. And being obedient to the Lord, becoming more like Him, striving to conform to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, is going to take effort on our part. There's just no getting around that, folks, and we need to understand that. We need to see that. Paul understood that his walk with God was personal. He could not rely on anyone else to make sure that he was walking with the Lord. He had to do these things himself. And that's exactly what you and I need to do today. We need to fight the good fight. We need to finish the race. We need to keep the faith. Serving God is personal. Now you might have faithful parents and maybe you've had faithful grandparents. But are you personally involved in your discipleship? Are you growing as you should? Or are you just riding on the coattails of your family? Maybe you're a part of a good and faithful congregation and, and you attend regularly, you participate. You participate in worship and you sing and you pray. But that's about all that you do as far as your discipleship is concerned. Once worship is over, it's, it's back to my normal life without any thought given to what the Lord wants of me. To how I can change, to how I can help the local church and do better. If that's you, can you say that you are taking a personal interest in your discipleship? And then we have some who, who attend, and, and we're glad that they attend, we're glad that they're here, but they're inactive. They don't do a lot, or they don't do anything. Some, we have some members here that 
miss on a regular basis and you just never know whether they're going to be here or not. Are they taking a personal... Are they, are they personally involved in their discipleship? Or are they distracted? You know, we need to do what we can to help these brethren and encourage them. And we need to think about these things ourselves. But for the rest of our time today, let's dig a little deeper into what Paul meant when he said he fought the good fight. He finished the race and kept the faith. Because having a deeper understanding of these things can help us to be better disciples before the Lord. And so we look at the first thing that Paul said. He said, I have fought the good fight. Most of the time when we think of a fight, we're thinking of something violent or something that includes a lot of anger. And I, uh, unfortunately, I've seen my share of fights happen at the school where I work. We had quite a few of them just a couple weeks ago. I think it's because we've had kids out of school for so long that in essence at our school, it's like having two groups of freshmen on campus instead of your regular freshmen and sophomores. And so we've seen some intense students uh, fighting. Not all of them, but there's been quite a few fights. Or perhaps you've seen people get into an argument or a verbal fight, and, and people will say terrible and hurtful things to one another in, in these fights and these arguments, and, and much damage can be done without anyone laying a hand on the other. And that's, that's what we tend to think about when we hear the term fight. But that's not the kind of of fight that we're talking about here. The fight that we are to be involved in as a disciple of Christ is, is not a violent one, not a physical one, but rather a spiritual one. And just because it does not involve physical violence, just because it is called a good fight, let us not be deceived into thinking that it isn't an actual fight, because it is. It is a real fight. And it must be fought, and to fail to fight it will cost us our eternal souls. Brethren, this is the fight of our lives, our spiritual lives. Let's consider what is taught in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 17. Again, the Apostle Paul uh, writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So here we have another well-known passage to us. That reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle. And one of the things that stands out to me the most when I look at this passage is the fact that we simply cannot win this battle, this fight, all on our own. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Folks, we are just not equipped to fight this battle without God's help, and we need to see that. You know, we, we've talked before about people who never want to admit that they need help with things. And how important it is that, that we are humble enough to know when we need the help and encouragement of others. People can suffer needlessly simply because they have too much pride to ask their brethren for assistance. But what we are talking about here is way more important. If you're one of those people who have a lot of pride and who don't like to ask for help from anyone, you are not going to be successful in this battle. The only way in which we can win this good fight is with God's help. And so God has provided us with the tools that we need to be successful. He has provided us with His armor. 
that we can use to fight this good fight. So the question is, have you been working to equip yourself with the armor of God? Have you been preparing yourself for battle? Unfortunately, I think that we can sometimes as Christians fail to meditate on how serious this battle for our souls really is. And therefore, we end up neglecting to put on the full armor of God so that we can be protected from the influences of the devil. I mean, just think for a second about how many Christians were blindsided by the recent pandemic. In churches across the country, Christians have either, have, have either lost their faith completely or have had it severely weakened by the events of the past, what, 18 months now? There are Christians who, who are still not assembling with the saints. And there were many who only recently returned because of the fear that they had for a virus. A virus, by the way, which for a vast majority of people had a 99% survival rate. But you wouldn't know that by watching the way it's covered in the media today. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The virus was very serious for some. And that is true. And then there were some brethren who I could totally understand that they felt it was best for them... To, to be isolated for a while. I, I get that. I really do. But folks, many of the people who decided to stop worshiping with the saints did not fall into this category across the country. There have been individuals who have been completely vaccinated and who have still not returned. There have been individuals who have had the virus and recovered and still not returned. I know of people who did not return because they felt that everybody should be wearing masks and they were not satisfied with how the shepherds were handling these things. After all, they weren't doing what the government said they should do. And, and speaking of the government, we have seen brethren who would not come to worship because the government said that they could not do so. And, and these brethren very quickly handed over their decision on whether they could worship or not to people who have demonstrated time and time again that they have no love for God and His commandments. And they did this while neglecting to consider the examples of the early apostles in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And, and, and I've heard of people who have said that they will return when it's safe. Well, what does that mean? Is it ever really safe? I mean, we say all the time, you're not promised tomorrow. We're not even promised this afternoon, folks. Something could happen to us on the way home. We have stairs out front. Stairs are a major killer of Americans in this country. But we focus on other things. Is it ever really safe? I'm starting to think that for some, when it's safe means never. And that makes me sad. I would suggest to you that brethren who have had and who continue to have these difficulties have not been working to equip themselves with the full armor of God. And why do I bring this up? I'm not trying to start trouble. I'm not trying to make people angry. And I'm not trying to make people feel bad. It's just that if someone had their faith and their service to the Lord disrupted by the events of last year, what is going to happen to them when real trouble comes? What are they going to do when they run the risk of losing their whole livelihood because they stand for what Jesus teaches? What are they going to do when Christians are being arrested and thrown in jail for their faith? What are they going to do when Christians are being killed for their faith? This happens in other parts of the world, folks. And we're blessed that it's not happening here. But we mustn't be so naive to think that it could never happen here. And sadly, some have already lost their faith because of all this COVID stuff. But for those who have not completely thrown in the towel, for those that still see a value in having some sort of a relationship with God, even though they may be weak in their faith currently, there is time available right now for them to equip themselves with the full armor of God. And we need to do what we can to help them. You know, we've heard say a lot, 
when the pandemic was going on and throughout the pandemic, that we're all in this together. But you know, as, as Christians, as brethren, we need to do what we can to help those who are weaker in the faith because we are all in this together, trying to get to heaven. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, you might remember that old science fiction movie from years ago, The Terminator, starring Arnold. You know, the, the one that about the practically indestructible cyborg sent from the future to destroy its target. And, and one of the lines from that film was that this cyborg was never, ever going to stop. It was going to hunt down its intended victim until the job was done or it could not do so. You know, Satan is after you. Satan is after me. Satan is after our children. Satan is after our friends. Satan is after everyone that we love. And he is never, ever going to stop. I don't think that we consider this enough. And I understand why. It's not a very pleasant thing to think about. But folks, we are engaged in a battle for our souls. And we need to realize that Satan will use whatever he can to win this battle. And I believe that over this past year, he has used this crisis with COVID to attack the church. And he has been most successful in his attacks with those who have not prepared themselves for fighting the good fight. Brethren, this is serious business and we need to see that. Compared to what early Christians dealt with, things are not that bad right now. They're not bad. We have a lot of freedoms and we can be thankful for that. But as I mentioned earlier, we, we must not be so naive to think that things could, could not change for the worse. You, you, all you have to do is look at what some members of Congress, some of our leaders are saying. To see that there are people in government today that would love to trample on the rights of Christians. And if you're not seeing that, then you're not paying attention. And I know that's not fun to think about. And thankfully, we have a system that's set up with separation of powers and three branches of government. But there are people there in the government that don't like what we stand for. So we can't be naive. So let us strive to equip ourselves with the full armor of God so that we can be prepared to fight the good fight set before us. The other thing Paul says... I have finished the race. And when we read of this, many of us may be reminded of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run, thus not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So here, Paul compares our discipleship, our service to God, to that of running in a race. And he, and he tells us that we should run in such a way that we may win. He goes on to say in verse 25 that those who compete are, are temperate in all things. Verse 25 in the New American Standard Version reads, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. And, and then Paul talks about how these athletes are disciplining themselves for a perishable crown, but that we are striving for an imperishable crown. So what we are striving for as disciples of Christ is of much more value than what these athletes are striving for. And because of that, Paul states that he disciplines his body to bring it into subjection. And this is what Paul is alluding to in 2 Timothy 4 when he says that he has finished the race. And this is what we will want to be able to say when we come to the end of our lives. 
You know, when I read this, I, I am, of course, reminded of all the training and, 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 and dedication and hard work that athletes have to go through, that they choose to go through, in order to be able to compete at the highest level. I'm especially reminded of this, of this whenever the Olympics come on. And we just had a Summer Olympics not too long ago. And, you know, they'll always have those, those personal story segments, you know, in between the competition. And, and they'll talk about these competitors and showcase a, a certain competitor, maybe several competitors, and, and, and look at how hard they have worked and how much they have had to sacrifice in their lives to have this opportunity to represent their country in the Olympic Games. And, and, and this makes me wonder what our personal story in regards to our discipleship looks like. What does my personal story look like? What does your personal story look like? What are we doing to discipline ourselves? Are, are we working as hard as we can to resist sin? Are we preparing for the temptations to come well in advance so that we are ready for them? Are we taking steps to ensure that we actually change and become more like Jesus? Are we making Bible study and meditation on the scriptures a priority in our lives? Is the worship of the Lord a priority in our lives? Is studying the Bible with our brethren a priority in our lives? Do we pray to God regularly? Do we have a relationship with Him? What sacrifices are we making in regards to our service to the Lord? What have we had to give up? Have we had to give up friends? Have we had to give up family? Have we had to give up a job or job opportunities? Opportunities for promotion? Have we had to give up certain recreational activities? What does your personal story in regards to your discipleship look like? You know, that is something for us to think about. When thinking about the sacrifices one might need to make when coming to Christ, I, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, when Jesus had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Who desire, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then there's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Brethren, we are expected to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. We are expected to give up whatever it is that we need to give up in order to be pleasing to God. And God would have us present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not conforming to this world, but rather being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can be more like Him. Doing these things successfully will require tremendous dedication and sacrifice. The Apostle Paul understood this and worked hard to discipline himself that he might be pleasing to the Lord. And as a result, as he neared the end of his life, he was able to say that he had finished the race. Are we going to be able to say that about ourselves? And thirdly, Paul says, I have kept the faith. And so after he is saying, 
After saying that he has fought the good fight, and after saying that he has finished the race, Paul says, I have kept the faith. The one true faith that is in Christ Jesus. In the religious world today, there are so many different religions that people believe can get them into a better place after this life. But brethren, we know the Bible does not teach this. And, and there are a lot of good people, a lot of people who, who just don't know any better, and some of them are caught up in these things. And they're nice people. But they're following something that will not get them to heaven. And it, again, it reminds us of the work that we have to do in sowing the seed of the kingdom and sharing the truth with people. The Bible does not teach that there are multiple ways to get to Jesus. Multiple ways to get to God. Jesus taught that He is the way, the only way to God and salvation. John 14, verse 6, which we covered just a couple weeks ago in class. Jesus speaking to Thomas, one of the apostles, Jesus said to him, verse 6, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus also taught that if one loved him, that they would keep his commandments. We see that in verse 15 of the same chapter. Now, unfortunately, many today argue that there are several different ways to serve Jesus. In fact, they'll say, well, there's all sorts of different religions, which there are, but they're not all right. Jesus is the way. But then people say, well, but there's several different ways to serve Jesus. Just do what you feel like. But the Bible does not teach this either. As we look into and study the New Testament and the work that the early apostles did after Jesus had been sacrificed upon the cross for the sins of men and after he had risen from the dead and then ascended into heaven, we can see clearly as we study the book of Acts that there was one faith. And we see this continue even in the epistles. There was one faith. The early apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said would be sent to help them, as we've been talking about in our Sunday morning class. Guided by the Holy Spirit, these early apostles all taught the same thing. There weren't all of these different denominations like we see today. That's man's doing. That's not God's doing. In fact, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we see it stressed that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, Ephesians 4, verse 4, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. There is just no way that anyone with an open and honest heart can do a serious study of the New Testament and come to the conclusion that God had intended for there to be all of these different denominations with all of these different teachings. It's not in the Scriptures, folks. What you will find, though, are warnings against division and warnings against teaching something other than what had been taught by Jesus and the apostles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13, Paul ends this statement by saying, Is Christ divided? 
was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We can also look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So there was one faith. And Paul had kept that faith. He didn't teach anything other than, than what Christ wanted him to teach. And he got pretty fired up when brethren began to drift away from the pattern that had been established. So maybe, maybe someone's here visiting this morning. Or, or, or maybe someone is listening to the lesson online. We post all these lessons online. And Travis was showing me some of the stats of that. And we've had people all over the world listening to our lessons. And that's pretty cool. There was, there was people from the Ukraine, people from Germany, people from France. So maybe you're hearing these lessons and you're hearing these things. And maybe you've always considered yourself to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you've always thought of yourself as having been saved. But have you been really following the scriptures? Have you really been following what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches? Have you really been doing what Jesus would have you to do? Have you really obeyed his teaching? Or have you perhaps been led astray by those who claim to be of Christ, but have developed their own traditions and their own teachings in order to change with the times? I would encourage you to let us study with you. Let's look at what the Bible says. That's all that we have ever tried to do at this local church. We're not perfect. We're people who aren't perfect. That's why we need the blood of Jesus. But we're striving to follow the pattern that Jesus set before us. That's what we're trying to do here. We have always wanted nothing more than to follow Christ according to what He has taught. And if you have questions, ask them. And let us look to the Bible for the answers. Because the only way to God is through Jesus, and the only way to heaven is by following Him and keeping the faith. The faith. The Apostle Paul had done that. He had kept the faith, and that is exactly what we want to be able to say that we have done when we get to the end of our lives. And if we can honestly say that we have kept the faith, if we can honestly say that we have finished the race, if we can honestly say that we have fought the good fight, we can have the assurance and confidence that Paul had that his future home was going to be with God in heaven. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul was able to say this not because of arrogance or, or because he felt that he deserved heaven or anything else for that matter from God. He was able to say this because he had consistently done his very best to follow Jesus and because he trusted what Jesus had promised. Again, going back to a passage we looked at in our Sunday morning Bible class a few weeks ago, John 14, verse 1, where Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know something, folks? God wants us to have this same confidence 
that Paul had. And he has provided the means by which we can have it. We do not need to be a people who wander through our lives hoping that we make it to heaven. God has provided us with everything that we need in order to successfully fight the good fight, win the race, and keep the faith. It's just up to us to take advantage of what the Lord has provided for us. Brethren, I hope this has been helpful to you today. It has been a a tremendously good reminder for me. And I hope it motivates us to carry on, put the Lord first, fight that good fight, keep the faith. Let us continue to run this race so that we can finish it. Let us do what we need to do. So we can be blessed with that home in heaven when this life is over. If you're not a Christian this morning, well, we have time set aside right now where we offer the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can become a Christian this very day. If you have not obeyed the gospel, you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. We simply teach that because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the early Christians did. That's what we do. And we could help you with that today. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died for you to save you from your sins and you want to be with Him and you want to be buried with Him in baptism, raised up to walk in newness of life, we can, we can help you with that today. Or maybe you have been a Christian for a number of years and you're struggling. You're struggling to fight that good fight. You've been struggling to keep the faith. You've been struggling and some of these attributes that we've been talking about this morning. And you, you realize you're, I, I'm really having a hard time. I need to kind of refocus myself. We can pray for you. We can help you. Please reach out to us. Reach out to any of us. Reach out to us, the elders. We're here to help you. We're here to, you know, do what we can to encourage you and edify you. And if you need the prayers of the congregation, this is an opportunity for you to get those prayers. Or maybe you've sinned in a public manner. And, and you've, you, you realize you've done wrong and you need to, you need to make things right. And, and, and you, want to, you want the prayers of the congregation, we can help you in that too. Whatever your need may be, if you're subject to the invitation of our Lord, please come forward as we stand and sing.